0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, birthing on country is better for First Nations mothers and their babies. So why isn't it more widespread?
1: Diagnosing Alzheimer's disease with a blood test, it's getting closer. A simple solution for some of the deadliest problems in residential aged care. And a joint you wouldn't normally think is prone to osteoarthritis, but it is and it's not well treated. It's arthritis at the base of your thumb. And a group at the University of Sydney have done a study to improve the effectiveness of care. Dr. Letitia de is a rheumatologist and researcher at the Institute of Bone and Joint Research at the Colling Institute.
2: Thumb-based osteoarthritis is a very common joint disease that mostly affects older women, the prevalence is really high so about one-third of women over 70 years of age have osteoarthritis at the base of the thumb. The symptoms are mostly pain at the base of the thumb and difficulties to do things involving the hands such as opening jars, writing and common activities that we do on a daily basis.
1: Why women and is it ordinary osteoarthritis or is it another condition altogether?
2: This is osteoarthritis, the condition that we are describing. Women. Probably because of hormonal factors and the condition usually occurs after menopause. So that's usually related to hormonal changes.
1: So it's quite disabling in many women. And how has it been treated in the past?
2: Currently, the treatment for thumb-based osteoarthritis is based on painkillers advised to modify the way that people do their activities involving their hands. and surgery, as the last resort.
1: Is surgery a joint replacement?
2: Yeah, there are different types of surgery. One of the most common one is removing a piece of the bone, trapeziectomy, and that aims to relieve symptoms.
1: So what were you trying to do in this study?
2: We try to find a treatment strategy with a greater benefit. We do have other treatment options, such as exercises, anti-inflammatories, and splint. In isolation, they provide small benefits. And we aim to test whether Combining these treatments would provide greater benefits compared to education about the disease and the ergonomic principles. And the anti-inflammatory that we used was a gel.
1: And when you say ergonomic principles this is like using a device to open up a jar a thicker handle for your bread knife and things like that exactly what did you find
2: so we found that people in the intervention group had better improvements in terms of hanging function after three months
1: so what did they notice because it's fine to have a research study which measures things on a scale but what did the women notice that was better in the intervention group
2: we asked them how they were feeling after six weeks and after 12 weeks. And about 70% of people in the intervention group, they reported that they were feeling significantly better in terms of the pain, the function, or so the ability of using the hands and the health overall. It took a little bit more time for us to see an effect in pain function was better at six and 12 weeks but pain took a little bit more time so that suggests that we should persist and encourage patients to continue using the treatments even if they don't find the treatments are that beneficial in the beginning so if they keep using the treatments they might get better by three months.
1: So is this a therapy that needs to continue forever or can you stop it and hope for lasting effects?
2: It's a chronic condition what we saw in the trial is that people were able to self-manage their condition after the first three months. So we had another follow-up at six months. The function, so the ability of using the hands, continued to improve. And pain got slightly worse after these six months, probably because they were not using the whole treatment, so the full interventions. But they were still a lot better compared to at the beginning of the trial.
1: Now, the anti-inflammatory is straightforward. The uh, education is reasonably straightforward. But is this something you need to see a physiotherapist about or can your GP give you it?
2: It can be given by a GP. So the exercises were simple exercises as well. So we gave people five types of hand exercises. It can be delivered by the GP.
1: Is there anywhere people can go to find out what these exercises are for themselves?
2: We have a handbook. and There are a few other resources available online. And the trial is out and the exercises are described there. Good.
1: We'll have a link on our website. Thank you very much, Letitia.
2: My pleasure.
1: Dr. Letitia Devesa is a rheumatologist and researcher at the Institute of Bone and Joint Research at the Colling Institute at the University of Sydney. You're with Iron's Health Report and I'm Norman Swan. Alzheimer's disease, believe it or not, is very hard to diagnose definitively because it relies on seeing particular pathology in the brain when you look with a microscope. The pathology is the accumulation of a protein called amyloid and another protein called tau around the nerves. This makes testing treatments hard as well as predicting the future for families and individuals who are having thinking and memory problems. The Holy Grail is a blood test, also called a biomarker, and that's what Alexis Moscoso has been working on at the University of Jóteborg in Sweden.
3: We now know that biomarkers are necessary because the clinical diagnosis is not accurate enough to detect Alzheimer's disease. A patient might have a clinical syndrome that is perfectly compatible with what we understand as Alzheimer's disease, you know, memory loss and all these cognitive deficits, but in fact, might be another disease. So that's why we need biomarkers to see what's going on in the brain and detect the pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease.
1: It's a fancy name, biomarkers. We use biomarkers all the time. So for a heart attack, there's a biomarker called troponin. For high cholesterol, there's a biomarker there, which is your cholesterol test. This is just another blood test. So what is this particular blood test measuring that you've been looking at?
3: This particular blood test is measuring one of the pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease, which is the abnormal aggregation of the tau protein. Alzheimer's disease is characterized by two proteinopathies. One is amyloid pathology and the second is tau pathology. So with this blood test, we are measuring very accurately the presence of tau pathology in the brain.
1: And just to explain that when you look at the brain under the microscope, which of course you can't do in people in life, these two proteins gather around the nerves, the amyloid and the tau, T-A-U, and what you're looking at presumably is a spillover into the blood of the tau protein.
3: That's it. We don't understand yet how exactly these tau proteins finally get to the bloodstream. What we know is that these blood-based biomarkers are, are really promising and they perform really good. So what did you do in this study? In this study, what we did is basically to study how this new plasma biomarker is able to predict future neurodegeneration and cognitive decline.
1: And just to explain, the group of people you were looking at or a group of people you've been following, you've been doing brain scans on them, including PET scans, which are very fancy imaging scans of the brain, looking at how the brain is metabolising, as well as following how they're going functionally. And what did you find? How close was the tally, if you like, between the tau and the blood? and the progression of some of these people to Alzheimer's and indeed worse functioning?
3: First of all, we found that Plasma phosphotau was able to predict progressive neurodegeneration and cognitive decline in the future, both in initially cognitively impaired individuals, individuals experiencing symptoms of the disease, but most importantly in individuals who were cognitively unimpaired, who are cognitively healthy. This is one of the most important results of our study. The other important result was that, yes, these progressive neurodegenerative changes and progressive cognitive decline were accompanied by an increase in the levels of plasma phosphatau in blood. So plasma phosphatau might be helpful to predict and monitor disease progression.
1: Given that you found it in the blood of people who were yet to develop dementia and cognitive decline is this a diagnostic marker in other words if you did this test and it was positive can you say this person has alzheimer's disease
3: there's an ongoing discussion that alzheimer's disease should be considered a purely biological entity this means that one individual can have alzheimer's disease without experiencing any type of symptoms the only requirement to have Alzheimer's disease is a positive test of amyloid and a positive test of tau. And we now know that plasma tau is a relatively good marker of both amyloid and tau pathology. So, yes, we can, with a reasonable accuracy, we can detect these two hallmark pathologies, Alzheimer's disease in the living brains.
1: And what you're referring to there is the work particularly of Karen Ritchie, an expatriate Australian in the south of France, who's showing that you can have indications of Alzheimer's disease when you're entirely normal, maybe 20 years, 30 years before dementia develops. What's the use of knowing this when we don't have treatments?
3: It's important because we need to identify individuals who are having Alzheimer's disease, who actually have The pathology we are targeting with treatments that was a major limitation of previous clinical trials for instance we are including subjects with the clinical syndrome of alzheimer's disease but about 30 percent of them did not have alzheimer's disease at all so if you are testing a disease modifying drug that is targeting alzheimer's disease pathology and you are including subjects without alzheimer's disease the trial is not going to be as effective as it could that's why it's so important the use of, of biomarkers and knowing that someone has the neuropathological hallmarks of the disease. It's also important to know that both who are cognitively unimpaired and have both amyloid and tau pathology in the brain, as measured with PET, for instance, with positron emission tomography, cerebrospinal fluid biomarkers, or even now with plasma tau, will have likely cognitive decline in the next coming years so we can anticipate the families and the caregivers to what's gonna happen in the next few years so even though we don't have treatments yet I think it's very relevant for clinicians to achieve an accurate diagnosis the use of biomarkers
1: and just finally is this a test that's accurate and able to be scaled up to commercial pathology labs so general practitioners one day might be able to order it? And is it affordable?
3: That's the main strength of this plasma biomarker because we can now measure amyloid and tau with positron emission tomography imaging. The problem is that this is a very expensive technique and it's only limited to very specialized centers. With serous spinal fluid biomarkers, there is a similar problem. It is a relatively invasive technique because it requires a lumbar puncture. But with plasma biomarkers, they're both cheap and minimally invasive.
1: So this is the biomarker that we were looking for. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Alexis Moscoso is in the Department of Psychiatry and Neurochemistry at the University of Jutteberg in Sweden. Residential aged care has been in a state of crisis for years now over serious quality and safety issues and we're awaiting the federal government's detailed response to the Royal Commission's recommendations. But according to Professor Joanna Westbrook, who's director of the Centre for Health Systems and Safety Research at Macquarie University, there could be a fairly simple fix for some of the commonest causes of preventable harm in residential aged care. It's about using the data that already exist in aged care facilities.
4: I think it's indisputable that the aged care sector needs a major overhaul, more resources and better trained workforce and our research has taken a very pragmatic approach in terms of what can we do now to improve care, recognising the demands and limitations of the system. So our focus really has been on better using existing data and particularly leveraging the power of information technology in partnership with aged care providers and consumers one of the areas that we've particularly been focusing on is medication management within residential aged care.
1: Obviously a big source of complications and even death in some circumstances. So what you're saying is the data are there but they're not being used?
4: Absolutely. So I think it's very true to say that the aged care sector is absolutely data rich but information poor and a lot of that information is in silos. So over the last decade certainly we've seen an increase in the uptake of electronic systems in residential, aged care but that electronic data is still very much locked in those information systems and our research has really come in to say how can we link that data and provide models for how you can use it to actually understand what is happening now in residential aged
1: care. So let's take medications because you're Mm. getting the wrong medications prescribed, antipsychotics, you're getting wrong doses, there's all sorts of problems that arise. What have you found That you could actually solve and how would you do it?
4: We know that medication management is the major source of care for many residents. So 80% of residents are on five or more medications daily and forty percent are on ten or more. And we also know that there are major problems. So the Royal Commission showed that a third of all their complaints related to poor medication management. Over the last decade we've seen aged care facilities have started to introduce electronic systems for recording the administration of meds and this gives us a great opportunity. And what we've done is started to look at that data to say, let's use that data to start understanding what medications are on, whether it's appropriate for the conditions they're on, and whether there is overuse and underuse. So to give you a really practical example of how we've done this, one aged care provider we worked with had 68 residential aged care facilities. And they really wanted to look at the issue of antipsychotics, a big problem area. And we were able to look at their data, to link it with residents' conditions and look at variability across those facilities. So, we found, for example, that between 28 and 33 percent of residents were on an antipsychotic, and 65 percent of those who had been on an antipsychotic were using those medications continuously for three months or more, where the recommendations really suggest that it should be for less than that. So, we can start to use this data to feed back to. The facilities and they can start using it to target potential quality and uh, safety interventions.
1: But Joanna Westbrook, I'm missing something here. They've got electronic systems, so they've obviously got records of these prescriptions Why haven't they noticed this before? I mean, they've got the records there to work out that one in three of your residents are on antipsychotics.
4: Well, unfortunately, these systems don't have very good reporting analytics behind them. And they're also not linked to their other information about the residents. So they tend to be very siloed information. So at the moment... These electronic systems in aged care are primarily used for managing information and for, you know, recording, but not used to use that information to improve care. And that's really what we want to see happen.
1: So in a sense, it's part of the medical record, but it's not part of the medical management. Yes. So how involved is it to link all this data? And are there barriers to that legally?
4: It does require to go in and start looking at the ways in which you can link various siloed data set within a facility. And really, that's what our research is about, is to show that it is quite possible using the existing data to work with aged care providers to demonstrate how it is possible. It does mean that long-term IT vendors have to improve the functionality of their systems. But our research is really demonstrating that with the data that's available already, this can be done and we can generate really valuable data to pinpoint areas which require attention. Clearly, there needs to be more standardised data sets across the aged care sector. But certainly what we've got available, there is a lot of value that can be obtained from those systems as they are.
1: So let's just, you know, you've got somebody who's trained as an aged care worker. There's a whole issue around the training of aged care workers and whether they're adequately trained for the job. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got receptionists and clerical staff. People are not trained in data. So you sit down at this computer screen. You're scaring me now. I mean, what, what do I do? Where do I start?
4: I think that's why we're really keen to work in partnership with aged care providers to demonstrate what is possible from their data to then generate automatic reporting systems so they don't have to do the back-end work that they can generate these reports. Also presenting data in ways which different people can understand and use that data. One of the other things that we are moving to is not just using this data in a descriptive sense, but also working to develop more predictive analytics and decision support. And so we currently have and National Health and Medical Research Council project, which is in its second years, to develop a dashboard of predictive analytics for residential aged care.
1: Joanna Westbrook, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Professor Joanna Westbrook is director of the Centre for Health Systems and Safety Research at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation at Macquarie University. Australia is generally a good place to have a baby, but there is a significant gap. Indigenous babies are more likely to be born prematurely and their mothers are less likely to attend medical appointments during pregnancy or be breastfeeding by the time they leave hospital. These are all factors that contribute to the to poorer health of the baby down the track. It's a multi-layered problem, but Aboriginal communities say part of the solution is culturally safe maternity care, a holistic approach that goes beyond just looking after a woman's physical needs. We'll talk to Adrian Carson from the Brisbane's Institute of Urban Indigenous Health in a minute. But Teagan, you've spoken to a mother who's given birth through a program that takes this approach. In fact, she's an author on the paper. That's
0: right. She now works at the centre. So in 2013, two Aboriginal controlled community health services teamed up with a hospital in Brisbane and started the Birthing in Our Community program, which they call the BIOC program. And as you say, the idea was to provide a holistic, culturally sensitive approach to childbirth. And uh, Christy Wattago, she's a Bundjalung woman from Logan in southeast Queensland. She gave birth through the BIOC program and loved her experience so much that she now works at the service. Uh, and her birthing experience through the program was just a far cry from her experience with her second son, uh, who was born through a private obstetrician. She'd been deemed high risk because of factors including her weight but the model of care left her feeling disempowered and like she'd somehow let her baby down.
5: It was nothing more than a transaction but I then had the pleasure of joining the buyout program and for those who actually genuinely take the time to listen and hear and to be open to catch those thoughts was really really empowering and it allowed me to make healthier choices, to want to lean into the right places to seek the appropriate support, which is a continual drug juggle journey of mine in my life and something that I don't want my children being a part of. And it is all about me making healthier choices for them. And part of that healthy choice was about me engaging with this incredible service who weren't judging me and who were walking with me to ultimately provide a better solution, a better outcome for me and my family unit. And then I had the beautiful birth of my third boy, Lukey. So what was the birth like,
0: the birth experience?
5: Uh, The birthing experience is always magical and it's always sacred. But it was fantastic in the fact that I was really looking forward to embracing this. And my family unit were with me by my side, all waiting out in the waiting room. But they openly celebrated with me. And what was even more exciting is back at the hub, they too also celebrated with me and my success of making healthier choices and leaning into that vulnerability to be able to seek support.
0: Both times there were things that you maybe were being asked to do by your caregivers, but the first time it felt like a bit of a power imbalance, and then the second time it felt like collaborative.
5: Absolutely. It was an absolute power imbalance. It was a checklist that someone had to go through who she barely knew me and I suppose categorised me as all of these things without even knowing what was in my heart and what a great mother I would be, regardless. That really knocked my confidence on so many levels, even though I was a mature mother.
0: Mm. And so now you're part of this resource for other young mums. Can you talk a bit about what work it is that you do now?
5: What we do know with our families is that there's so many other aspects to our life social and emotional and spiritual well-being that are just as important as our physical. And if we do not give the opportunity for the person that's sitting opposite from us to share what those challenges are, to also help them understand that there is an opportunity to seek support and that they are worthy then we are robbing them of something. We allow that opportunity here at The Hub where we see them for who they are. We do not make judgment. We support them on their journey of becoming strong, black, deadly families and raising a strong family unit that is healthy and continues to engage with health care.
1: That was Christy um, Wottigo, who actually works for the Ur- Institute of Urban Indigenous Health and also with association to the University of Queensland. Thanks for the interview, Tegan. And Adrian Carson, who's the chief executive of the Institute, is on the line. And just to explain, the Institute is a massive Aboriginal medical service, community-controlled across greater metropolitan Brisbane. How many centres have you got now, Adrian? It was
6: about 20? Yeah, 19 clinics at the moment, no. um, normally, It'll- but um, four respiratory clinics as well, so...
1: Yep, yeah, you'll soon be taking over the world here. So, t- tell me about this research that you did. What what did you do?
6: Yes, it was um, as Christy kind of described. It's the the bioc model, and you know, that model was developed in response to the fact that the the existing service in place, so what was called the the Marta, uh, Murray Clinic, um, despite ten years of good work and it being particularly pro- popular within the Indigenous community, um, research on the on the ten years of of effort and had basically demonstrated no significant out- improvement in outcomes for for mums born through that program in fact the research actually indicated uh, an increase in preterm birth rates so oh, really um, with OUI becoming active and obviously in partnership with apes Brisbane our first and oldest ab medical service in Queensland and parted also with uh, the MARTA, uh, we kind of we did we, we pressed reset you know, we opened open up a conversation with the community um, with elders with mums and dads and and key leaders within the system. And allow community to describe what it is they wanted from a a birthing service, which um, despite the good efforts of the MARTA was very different and was a shift from hospital to to community. It was about a shift from clinical care provided by midwives to kind of wraparound support, particularly supported by Aboriginal family support workers uh, and within the context of a broader comprehensive primary health care setting.
1: So essentially Uh, you were looking after people in place in a culturally appropriate way.
6: Exactly. And, and as Christy described, um, actually allowing mums to be part of the design process. And it wasn't just Christy, I think the last, our first and even our current manager, the, the last three managers of Bioc have all actually met Bioc as mums. So who best to design and kind of get the model right, but Aboriginal mums themselves that have birthed through the service. So it's an extending outcome. And if you look at what the researchers actually reported, Norman, it, it represents a 50% reduction in preterm birth rates. Really. So, to the extent that we're talking now about mums, bubs born through the birr program um, having preterm birth rates actually better than the non-Indigenous average. So, when people talk about closing the gap, here's an example of a model which has actually closed the gap, and a really key um, outcome that of birth. Um, we've actually we've actually started to turn things around. You know, when we've got high rates of preterm birth, we're actually we're birthing our babies into a gap. And you know, here's an example of a program which has been designed by local communities and particularly empowering of Indigenous mums but also dads within the context which is South East Queensland. This whole kind of system of care that's wrapped around to provide the best clinical care um, but also the best social support care and advocacy.
1: And they're more likely to breastfeed exclusively after a discharge as well.
6: That's it, that's it. And again, I think some of the, I think the, the key again, Norman, is that here we celebrate an international publication in Lancet, the fact that we've actually reduced preterm birth rates by 50% demonstrating actual closing the gap in preterm birth rates between Indigenous and non-Indigenous mums is this is what closing the gap looks like and I think the, the concern from my you be really now is the, the silence from government. Um, really? Yeah, where the mad rush is, everyone's so, so keen and committed to close the gap in Indigenous health, a gap which we've committed to closing by 2031, which is 10 years away from where we are now and here you've got a program that's producing these fantastic outcomes. Is it
1: replicable? You know, if you go, if you go to Townsville or... Uh, rural New South Wales, is it, can you replicate it?
6: This this, this research forms part of a broader partnership, you know, part of a um, birthing on country uh, kind of movement nationally. But I think again, you look at South-East Queensland, it's something we continue to stress to government is yes, these kind of programs can be transferred, but you've got to look at the specific context within which they've they've been developed and that is unique. So you've got to design That's it from like scratch
1: you're... for a different community.
6: It, but... You do, you do. Um, but again, I think also the fact that urban Indigenous communities, and particularly South East Queensland, which is home now to over 100,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people representing over 11% of the country's Indigenous population, I think we need to be focused on immediately um, so, in transferability within South East Queensland.
1: So, you know, white Australians um, get birthing underwater, dark, you know, dimmed lights, soft music. They get, the, <laughs> they get what they want. What's the excuse the governments give for not doing this more widely?
6: yeah well it'd be it'd be good if they let us know what the excuse is because at the moment it's deafening silence norman, and again this whole thing about closing the gap we do we we acknowledge the the commitments we acknowledge the investment it isn't always about um new money either it's also maybe about considering where existing investment is and redirecting it to programs like this, but actually produce outcomes and if government hasn't got a track record of producing these kind of act outcomes in a timely manner. Closing the gap by 2031, then perhaps government's best to step back and allow community-controlled organisations to step up.
1: Yeah. So the the government talks about translational research all the time, putting research into action. This is an example. Has it been sustained beyond your National Health and Medical Research Council funding?
6: It it, it has. So we've built it in as part of a CQI program for the for the actual service itself. Um, So we were, I think, we had the luxury of having an NHMRC research grant. Kind of kicking it off and underpinning it from the from the get go. So luxury we don't have with the vast majority of the services that we deliver across Southeast Queensland. Um, but we were obviously very smart to ensure that what we what we did have um, has been built into the system, so that we can continue to actually reflect on on outcomes. We're still partnered with Charles Darwin University to look at how things continue to improve. But most importantly, we're actually not waiting for the Lancet to tell us that things are changing. We're actually systematically looking at progress and outcomes as we go. I think it's, again, just a shame that. It's a good thing that the Lancet produces some application of the message and people might listen. The reality is that we've actually had these outcomes demonstrated for the last four or five years.
1: Thanks, Adrian. Adrian Carson is the Chief Executive of the Institute for Urban Indigenous Health in Brisbane.
0: Norman, it's mailbag time. I've got lots of questions. Remind
1: us what the email address is to yes. send it into.
0: Send your questions to healthreport at abc.net.au.
1: should yes. say, most <laughs> weeks I get a chance to have a quick sneaky peek at them to be able to sort of read up just in case I know. This is now without notice. So I'm on the high wire. Yep. Carry on.
0: All I'm hearing is excuses, but yeah, I yeah. believe in you. <clears throat> Philip says, a uh, question from the viewpoint of vegan osteoporosis sufferers. Mm. A friend has suggested that drinking oat milk where calcium is listed as one of the ingredients will just result in plaque in the arteries, rather than calcium in the bones, is there a material difference in the way the body absorbs calcium in cow's milk versus calcium as an ingredient in oat or other non-dairy milk?
1: You've just got to be a bit careful with calcium supplementation. So I don't know the answer to whether or not it's um, more absorbable or a problem. But calcium by tablet is a bit of a problem. And research at the University of Auckland, which was it? Wellington? I can't remember actually. But any New Zealand research that we've had on from Ian Reid has shown that there are cardiac risks from taking calcium supplementation. So I think that you've got to find calcium-rich foods if you are on a vegan diet and if you've got significant osteoporosis. Now, let's just talk about osteoporosis for a minute and talk about osteoporosis prevention. So you don't want to smoke, and hopefully if you're vegan, you're so healthy, you don't want to smoke. High-impact exercise, so not swimming You want to actually be bouncing using gravity, and that strengthens your bones. Now, it's a bit different if you've already got osteoporosis, but there's no question that gravity-based exercises are what you want to prevent osteoporosis. And if your osteoporosis is significant, then you probably might need medication. There's not a lot of evidence that vitamin D and calcium make a big difference here, and uh, it may well be that you need medication, which does have its side effects, so it's not an easy question you've asked. But even you know, as you're growing up, calcium in dairy is better than calcium as a supplement. There's no question about that. But obviously, you're not going to drink that if you are a vegan.
0: And a question from Maria saying, are vaporizers or humidifiers actually useful for common colds? Or is this a myth? And if they are useful, does it matter if you use one or the other?
1: That's a very good question always um quick answer is i don't really know what i do know is that if you've got a kid with croup then a humidified atmosphere so you take the child with the croup into the bathroom you turn on the tap the hot taps and you fill and shut the windows you fill in the bathroom with steam and anecdotally there's not been a randomized trial the, the child may well improve quite a bit in that humidified atmosphere I think they have studied nebulizers with the common cold and not found great benefit. Some people have studied nasal saline drops and found some benefit from those to unblock the nose. You know, you're not going to do much harm in a COVID world. You've got to be a bit careful of nebulizers, as we've heard, but without much around. So uh, you you try things out, and if it helps you, that's fine. It's not going to do you much harm here.
0: And this isn't so much a question as a comment from Marcus, who says, thank you for the segment on bipolar disorder we, that we did on the 15th of March. I wish that the other reporting was also nuanced in the way that Norman and Liz, Associate Professor Liz Scott from uh, the Brain and Mind Institute, spoke. And Marcus says, something Liz said was very interesting as I think about my own childhood suffering and trauma and how memories that are formed are not narrative but live in other parts of the brain, and is asking Norman if you have any books or other things to read about this or or where the research base is for this so that he can read more?
1: What I'll do is I will talk to Liz Scott and we'll put that up on our website and Di Dean, who's our producer, will make sure I don't forget.
0: <laughs> and one last question from Christopher who says uh, they've heard that a company called MyRNA, M-Y-R-N-A, Myrna, mm. is claiming to give weight loss advice based on DNA Is there evidence that DNA can be used for personalised weight loss advice? It sounds spurious, but uh, I think Christopher's intrigued.
1: Just like if it sounds too good to be true, it is. And if it sounds spurious, it almost certainly is. Run for the hills and save your money.
0: Well, that's the mailbag for today. Uh, Like we said, healthreport at abc.net.au is the email address for me to throw questions without notice to Norman and watch him try to find an answer.
1: (laughs) Terrifying. (laughs) See you next week.
0: See you then.